um, yesterday morning, Pastor Bob called me, and he's been having difficulties, physical difficulties. I'm not going to go into that, but it came upon him yesterday, and um, so that's why I'm here. But I'd like to, uh, as our brother said, um, let's pray for him right now. Almighty, eternal God, we thank thee and thy well-beloved Son, we have the great physician. When he walked upon the earth, there was no illness, nothing could resist the authority of his voice. And so as we uphold Pastor Bob to thy throne of grace, may you give the word to send healing grace to our dear pastor. We thank you for him. We thank you for the gifts you have given to him. And we pray that you would raise him up again very soon. Give the doctors wisdom as they try to diagnose what is that infirmity that's keeping him down. So now we pray, our Father, for the message that's to go forth only as you anoint it, will do any good to any one of our hearts. In that spirit, we commend this time in Jesus' name. Amen. It was on the night our Lord was betrayed that he gave the sixth I am portrait. And the text for my message this morning <clears throat> uh, is how the Lord had gathered his apostles in a place of scripture referred to as the upper room to observe the Passover meal commemorating Israel's deliverance from Pharaoh's Egyptian bondage. And you remember when the death angel went over the land and when they did not see the blood, the death resulted in the home of every Egyptian family. But when the death angel passed over the children of Israel and they saw the blood, the death angel passed over, and that's how precious the blood of Jesus is to be under his blood, to be cleansed by his blood. It was here that the Lord Jesus would institute the sacred meal of bread and wine, which we know as the Lord's Supper, which we'll partake of later, which would be a memorial to his sacrificial atoning death, which would take place the very next day. It would be a memorial for his people to remember that they were delivered from the bondage of a greater Pharaoh, the prince of darkness, Satan. In this setting, one writer described it as likened unto the glorious radiance of the setting sun, surrounded by dark clouds that grew darker as the night unfolded with distant flashes of lightning, accompanied by the sound of rolling thunder. In chapter 13, which was the beginning of what unfolded in the upper room that evening, the Lord gave his disciples an example of servanthood for which they were to follow. And you remember how he knelt behind and knelt at the feet of everyone, his disciples, and washed their feet. Then there was the identifying of the traitor who would betray him, Judas Iscariot, and the commandment to love one another as he had loved them. Then he informed them of his departure that was at hand, and after Peter declared he would lay down his life for Jesus, the Lord told him that he would deny him three times. And then as Arthur Pink has written, the Lord's Paschal Discourse really begins in chapter 14, where he's recorded the sixth I am portrait that Christ gives of himself. 
What is so amazing is that in his humanity, and knowing what lay ahead, Gethsemane, the arrest, the mock trials, the awful beatings and scourging, and then the cross, where before he was never touched by the slightest shadow of sin, would on the cross be laden with the sins of the world, our sins, your sins. First Peter 2.24, that he bore our sins in his own body upon that accursed tree. Colossians 2.14, all the ordinances that were against us was nailed to his cross. First Peter 3.18, he, the just one, who knew no sin, suffered for our sins of the guilty, that for what reason? To bring us to God. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Father made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He knew he would drink the bitter cup of God's wrath in the place of sinners that he came to save, yet knowing what lay ahead, yet knowing what lay ahead, he is free of agitation, stress, and woe caused by the awful suffering that awaited him. Instead, he is caught up with them <clears throat> that he is about to leave, and he's concerned about what would befall them when he would no longer be with them. But you see, John 2.25 says, the Lord knows what is in each one of our hearts. I'm so glad for that. I'm so glad for uh, 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 Hebrews 4.13. Everything is naked and open for the eyes of, of him with whom we have to. I'm so thankful for that, that everything is open naked before him. And he knew what was going on in the hearts of his disciples when he would be no longer with them. The Lord knew what was stirring in the hearts that the events that unfold in chapter 13 must have been a very disturbing and unsettling effect upon them, especially when they learned that he was leaving them. For they knew of the hatred the Pharisees and religious leaders had for Jesus. He, they, he knew, they, they knew that. And when he would leave them, then it would come upon them. And they were concerned. They could see themselves as sheep in the midst of wolves. So the Lord lovingly and tenderly speaks to them as recorded in our text, John 14, 1 to 11. And I'm going to read starting at verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there ye may be also. And whither I go you know, and the way you know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not where thou goest, and how can we know the way? This is our text. Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my father also, and from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the father and suffice with us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, and you have not known me, Philip? He that has seen me has seen the father. And how sayest thou, show us the father? Believest thou not that I am in the father, and the father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. 
Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. And so having said that now, I, I would like to have you remember that Matthew 16, 18, the Lord said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <clears throat> and now the disciples had heard him say that, and he, he, they heard him say, I'll give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The building of his church was about to begin, and would be through these apostles, the way of salvation, the way to the Father, the way to glory, would be through him, Christ the Lord, and that would be their message to tell the people. The Lord Jesus had been preparing them to enter to a life of faith, and now that time had come. And from chapter 14, 12, to the end of chapter 16, though the time had come for him to return to eternal glory from where the Father had sent him, he assures them that one, like himself, the Holy Spirit, would come and be with them always, but they would now be living a life of faith. And that's what we're to live, a life of faith. For no longer would the visible presence of the Lord be with them, but his spiritual presence always. But before we begin the message on the sixth I am portrait, I want to go back to the beginning of time. Let us consider what Adam had in relationship to God, his creator, before sin. One, he knew his maker was God who had created him, for the knowledge of God was inculcated in his mind and heart, which is true of every human being that descends from Adam. There was communion and fellowship with his creator because he was made in the image and after the likeness of God, Genesis 1.26. And three, he had spiritual life, which was breathed into his nostrils, and he became a living soul, Genesis 2.7. But sin changed all that. And now there's that threefold need, and Arthur Pink has written, one, reconciliation. The way back to the Father is through Christ. For Christ is the way. Two, illumination. Truth illuminates. Christ is the truth. Three, regeneration. In Adam, we have need of spiritual life. Christ is that life to all who believe. Now to the study of the sixth I am portrait. First, I am the way. At this time in human history, the Roman Empire ruled, <clears throat> and they had established good roads that paved the way for the spread of the gospel. There was a saying at that time, all roads lead to Rome, the center of the empire. We live at a time when many people believe that all roads lead to heaven. There is a DVD that I like to play again and again called The Divine Appointment. In the program, a lady takes a portable microphone and goes out to interview people with this question. How can a person go to heaven? Well, here are some of the answers. Believe in God. Live a good life. Live right and, and go to church. Do good and don't hurt anybody. Keep the Ten Commandments. Believe in the man upstairs. Praying, hard work, do good, help the needy and the poor, and go to church once a month. Of course, there are many more that they all have one thing in common, all based upon their own understanding of God. 
and can be summed up in one verse. There's a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 16, 25. This way that is the broad way is many people travel and every false gospel is the broad way, is the wide gate. It, it, it's the wide gate, or at least the broad way. The feel-good gospel, the prosperity gospel, the seeker-friendly gospel, and all these other gospels, they're all part of the wide gate that leads to the broad way, and many travel therein to their own destruction. You see, it's pop because there's no parameters, and it's measured by the wisdom of self and... <clears throat> With God being obliterated from public life, the throne in the sanctuary of many hearts is occupied with self. And dear ones, the older I get, the more I despise self when I see it in myself. It's ugly. Self is ugly because self is centered only upon me, I, and myself. This is true of many professing Christians. For this Christian, for this culture, is blinding many. You know, it'd be well, I believe, for many Christians to take heed to Philippians 3, 17 and 19. You know what it says? The Apostle Paul said to the church of Philippi, be ye followers of me and mark them who walk, even as you have us for an example. For many walk of whom I tell you now, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is their destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. God's way is the way of holiness spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, chapter, Isaiah 35, 8. It is called a highway for such is the journey of life. All highways in this terra firma have a destination. So does the highway of life <coughs> have a de- destination to the divine appointment, which, which we must all keep. Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed unto man once to die. But after this, the judgment, dear ones, it's God has laid upon my heart when I get mail, not to put in a circular file, but use it as a means of getting out the gospel. And this verse I quote ever again and again and again to remind everybody I write to, they have a divine appointment that they cannot escape. Uh, they cannot escape that divine appointment. The highway the prophet Isaiah referred to leads to the heavenly man mansion that Jesus referred to in verse 2. In verse 2 it says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. The Lord Jesus refers to it as a narrow way in Matthew seven fourteen. You know, it says, this is important. And he's coming to the end of the greatest sermon ever preached, and he says, Enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that follow thereon. For straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that walk thereon. You see, he is the doorkeeper of that straight gate because it says in John 10, 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pastures, green pastures. Yes, 
the, the way of the cross is a narrow way. It's hard at times, but at least the life and salvation for the Lord Jesus is that, the straight gate, which is the is entrance of the narrow gate. And as I said before, there's so few that are finding it. There are seven imperatives to impress upon us that Jesus is the only way. One is a way of holiness is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. For those who know the Lord and reverence him will walk in a way that can be approved, that can, that can approve of a way that imitates him. First Peter 1, 15 and 16. He who hath called you is holy. Be ye all holy in all manner of life, for it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. The way is straight and narrow. No crooks or bends that the human element in us may at times feel comfortable with. But we need to remember, bends and crookedness dishonors the Lord. It is a way that guards against spiritual harm, for the good shepherd leads his own <clears throat> in the way of righteousness, so that the ways of the world and its alluring attractions cannot invade the way of holiness and do spiritual harm. It's a journey designed or described by uh, by John Bunyan when he said, it's a journey to the celestial city. And I said that when I, uh, at my uh, uh, dear wife's memorial service, all of life is preparing to meet the Lord of heaven and earth. It's a way that guards against spiritual harm for the good shepherd leads his own <clears throat> in those paths. And it's a way whereby those who travel around can sing the song of their dream. You know what I do? One of the first things I do in the morning, I get up, I get my hymnal, Chinese hymnal, and I spend a half hour singing hymns. It is so good just to sing hymns, express myself to the Lord in singing hymns. And just as the brother led us in singing, he evidently likes to sing because he, he sings with passion in his heart. Sing with passion in your heart because we're alive in him. We're alive in our blessed Lord. Yes, it's a way when we've been delivered from the ways of the world, why should we enjoy the things of the world or the things that elevate what the world delights in? Fifthly, Christ is a way to the knowledge of God, for the attributes of God were clearly seen in his earthly ministry. He is the only way to the believer's eternal home. Christ is the only way one can can be under God's favor, for anyone not under God's favor are under his judgment, which we all deserve, but by God's grace, we as believers have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light to intend that we might truly reflect the image of Christ. As, a second, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord, and when we surrender ourselves to the Lord, then the Spirit of God can work in us and through us, and we can reflect the image of God's well-beloved Son. That's what life is all about. Oh, dear ones, the more, you know, I'm an old man. I'm an old man now, but I'm still learning. This last trial I went through has been so good for me. It has learned, taught me to trust the Lord even more than I do. And the more we trust him, the more we know him, and the more we know him, the more we love him. I don't think I ever loved the Lord as much as I do now. And that's the joy of living, to know the Lord, to love the Lord, and to serve the Lord. Bless his holy name. 
Christ is the only way to be adopted into the family of God, to the adoption of sonship and into the divine presence for fellowship and fullness of joy. Psalm 1611, I was uh, uh, just a young Christian, but I learned this verse. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Praise his name. In Hebrews 10, 20, it's through Christ by which we have access to the Father, by which our eternal soul is carried to heaven. For our Father is the end of the way. A man who does not have Christ is a wanderer just like Cain. Romans 3.12, they are gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Christ did not come to teach or guide, or guide others to the Father. He is the way, the only way to the Father. Billy Graham has preached in 185 countries, and he gave this testimony. Everywhere he would go, he would always have to explain or defend why Jesus is the only way to the Father, to glory and the eternal home for believers. God is of pure eyes unto look upon iniquity, as it says in Habakkuk 1.13. We are not in Christ. God cannot look upon us to hear us because of sin. There are those who are great philanthropists who think because of their generosity it will count to gain favor with God, but no way. John 5.29 says, <clears throat> the righteous will, at the, at the resurrection, the righteous will uh, be raised to uh, eternal life, and the, uh, and the wicked will be raised to, uh, to uh, condemnation because of their evil way. Why, why is it called evil? Because all the good that they did was tainted by sin. Unless we are cleared of that, cleansed from sin, everything we can offer to God is tainted. And everything a philanthropist offers, regardless of how much money he gives, it's tainted by sin because he's never been cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. Many people, as was mentioned, want to come to God on their terms, but God says, you come to me on my terms, on my way. And Jesus is that way, the only way. It's interesting to note that before believers were called Christians in Antioch, they were called people of the way. When they were called Christians, their enemies would use the term people of the way to demean and indicate they were without worth. It was an insult to be called a Christian. At one time in our country, one who was called a Christian was held in respect, but not in our day. Many Christians have forfeited that respect because we don't reflect Christ. Secondly, truth identifies with Christ. I am the truth. In John 18, 36, the Lord Jesus and his humanity was standing before Pilate in Pilate's judgment hall And Pilate asked Jesus a very important question, what is truth? Men have searched for truth in every area of life. The truth about the universe, there's a search for the truth about the origin of mankind, a search for truth about human existence. There's a continuous search for truth about these human bodies, which comes to light as truth is uncovered. Buddha, the founder of a religion which bears his name, would say at the end of his life, I am still searching for truth. 
The founders of other religions, such as Confucius and Mohammed, would never say they have found the truth or were the truth despite what their followers might say. Philosophers search for truth. Young people today are searching for the truth despite what their behavior might indicate. They're still searching for truth. But in this sixth I am portrait, the Lord Jesus said, I am the truth. Yea, the very incarnation of truth. Therefore, as someone has said, Christ is the fountainhead of all truth. And when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3, 1, he addressed Jesus as teacher, come from God, for all his miracles gave testimony that God was with him. But Christ is far greater than that. He is the very truth of God. <clears throat> Going back to the Lord's trial before Pilate, Pilate asked him if he were a king. Listen to the response of our Lord. To this end was I born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, and everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. That word heareth means, it's a Greek word, akawo, to grant or perform what is spoken, to do what I say. In society, there are laws that were governed by to keep order. A law against theft. Rejected, there's a consequence. We can reject laws that pertain to fraud, dishonesty, and business transaction. Always a consequence. You reject the law of mathematics. Always a consequence. We can reject laws pertaining to the driving on highways. And there's always a consequence. We can reject instruction concerning COVID-19. Many times a consequence. We can reject the laws of society that deal with life on the horizontal plane. And many times there's a consequence. We can reject Christ. We reject Christ when we deny his authority over every area of our lives. I want to repeat that. We reject Christ when we deny his authority over every area of our lives. There, too, is a consequence. There is a distinguishing mark between knowing the truth of God and the truth about Christ. One is not saved by knowing truth about Christ by embracing the truth in Christ who is the truth. History records, as does the truth of the Bible, that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, dead and buried. Salvation comes when I believe Christ died for my sins and was raised again for my justification. In other words, when I know Christ is the truth, as mentioned, I believe he died for my sins and was buried with my sins and was raised again for my life. That is more than knowing about Christ to know the truth of Christ, to know the truth of Christ, and know that He conquered death and ascended to heaven for me. That He is my life, and that He is my mediator. And as mediator, He has one hand on His people and the other hand on God the Father. Therefore, to know Christ as the truth demands truth in the heart and in the life, which will not allow sin to be treated as a powder puff. It will not allow convictions in the truth of God's word to be glossed over, to partake of what is pleasing to the flesh. It will not allow the conscience to be overruled by doing that which the conscience condemns. When one violates his conscience and convictions to partake of that which is pleasant and gratifying to the flesh is evidence one has never known Christ, who is the truth, whose title is the word, John 17, 17, Sanctify them with thy truth. Thy word is truth. Proverbs 6.23 says, Thy commandment is a lamp. Thy law is truth. And, and the next part I forget. 
Well, that's what happens. I know it as well as I know my name, but it don't come. That's one of the things about being old. Well, then Psalm 119, 105, 130. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my pathway. The entrance of thy word giveth light and it giveth understanding to those who are not too proud to receive him. Christ, thirdly, Christ the life. J.C. Ryle's written what the sun is in the firmament that casts its beams upon the earth which gives life and life. It is Christ the Son of righteousness whom the Father sent to be a great light to those who sit in darkness. John 6, 27 says, Labor not for the meat that perisheth, but that meat which endureth to everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the Father sealed, and sent to convey life to a dead world. As it says in Isaiah 2.22, man only has life in his nostrils, but Christ is the fountain of life. The life of nature is seen in the springtime of the year when life is brought into that which was dead through the season of winter. So in the spiritual realm, a life that has been dead in trespasses and sins is brought to spiritual life. The life that Christ brings in the words of another commentator of the Bible, just as the warmth of sunshine and rain causes a rose to bloom, so the life of Christ quickened into a soul dead in trespass and sins, there is a blooming of spiritual life. In 1 John 1, 2, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Christ is the giver of life and the source of all spiritual life to all who truly repent and believe. The specter of death affects us all. My first experience with death was when I was seven years old, and I'll never forget it. I was in the yard playing as kids play, and I saw my father come running from the fields when ran into the house quick, came out and got in the old hupmobile and roared back. And later I found out my brother drowned. He was 13 at a, a picnic. And I can still see him laying in the living room that we had, those viewings that, that they were in the home. I can still see him, so clearly I can see him laying uh, in, in the casket in the living room. I learned to hate the smell of flowers because it reminded me of death in my early age. I can still see him being carried up the steps into the church at the, uh, for the service, and I can still remember the hymn that they sang. Looking this way, yes, looking this way, loved ones in glory, looking this way. And then that same year, uh, my cousin, my first, co- my, first, uh, my first cousin, was gored by a bull. And I can remember seeing the body laying in the casket. I can still see the specter of death at a very young age. Romans 5.12 tells us that death comes upon all of us. Why? Because of sin. In the midst of death, Christ came, and as F.B. Meyer has said, the tree of life was again on earth's soil where the Lord became incarnate. In John 10, 27 to 30, he could say, I give unto my sheep eternal life because I am the life, as our text says. We need spiritual life, and that life is in Jesus, the Son of God. 1 John 5, 12. He that hath the Son 
hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath, does not have life. And Psalm 36, 9, the Lord is pictured as the fountain of life. Therefore, the Lord Jesus becomes a source of life to all who truly repent and believe in him with a heart belief. Therefore, until a man comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fountain of life, he is spiritually lifeless. And I can prove it by the scripture. Ephesians 2, 1 to 4. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, which in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all had our minor of life in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath as, uh, as others. But God, who is rich in, in grace for the mercy with which he loved us, while we were dead in trespasses and made us alive in Jesus Christ. Oh, when that grips you, how can you be so-so as a Christian? Oh, when that grips your heart, when we've been made, uh, uh, my goodness, I was 37 when I became alive, and, and since the time, I'm becoming more alive because Christ has more of me. And when Christ has you, there's nothing like joy, his joy. I remember the night he was betrayed, he said to his disciples, he said, if you keep my words, you will abide in my love, even as I abide in my Father's love. And then he said this, these things have I spoken to you, that my joy might remain in you, and that my joy in you might be full. And the more I have in Christ, the more joyful I am. Praise his wonderful holy name. Oh, praise his name. Praise his name forever and ever. In Ephesians 4, 18, 19, it shows just how, just uh, look at this pitiful condition of those uh, described in Ephesians 4, 18. Their understanding is darkened. They are alienated from the life of God through ignorance of them because of the blindness of their hearts, who being past feeling have given themselves over to his sensuality and greed to practice every kind of impurity. Romans 3.18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Self occupies the center of their being, which governs their lives and has no love for God, nor cares, nor cares for the glory of God. Life is lived strictly on the horizontal plane. To the prodigal son in Luke 15, the world and its no restraints was very attractive to him. So the father honored his request and gave him an inheritance to him. And without any delay, the son went into the far country <clears throat> to live it up. He surely did that. In a short time, he wasted his substance on riotous living. Proverbs 23, 15 says, What do you look upon that which is not? For riches take wings and fly away as an eagle toward heaven. And then in uh, uh, um, there's another oh, uh, Psalm 62 10. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Well, the time came when this prodigal son's inheritance ran out, and what did he do? He came to his senses and returned to his father. And it's not until a sinner comes to his senses that he'll see his need of the Savior. And it runs to the Savior and with and true repentance and faith. I can remember how I thought I was a pretty good Christian until I realized I was not a Christian at all. And that's when I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ 
It's the sweetest word in the whole Bible. Surrender, surrender, surrender. That's when you know the love of God and the peace of God that passeth all understanding. And how did the father receive him? Did he turn him away? So, no, you run. No, he welcomed him. And that's the way our heavenly father receives a sinner that repents with godly sorrow. If you're here this morning and you've never really repented, if you never saw the ugliness of sin, if you never saw the ugliness of lawliness, may the Lord place in your heart to truly repent with godly sorrow and flee to him and he won't turn you away. Faith believing what he did on the cross paid the debt for all your sin. That was a parable I spoke to you in Luke 15. But there's one verse that sums up, uh, gives testimony to this parable. Listen to these words. John 5, 24. He that heareth my words and believeth in him that sent me shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And that word heareth means to do, to receive, to be under the control of the one who spoke them, the Lord of heaven and earth. You see, <clears throat> Jesus is that life, and when a soul is united, not united to Christ by the new birth, he has no spiritual life and is under the power of the prince of darkness. Yes, he's alive physically, but he's dead spiritually. That's why John 10, 10 says, I have come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. When Jesus said, no man can come unto the Father but by me, what is meant is that he needs the life of Christ. And when Christ came in the world, he did not come to repair what sin had wrought in the life of one soul by, of a sinner, but to give a new life to the sinner who repents, his life, that they might have it in abundance. Christ is the great emancipator who delivers from the bondage of sin and from the father of lies and from the fear of death. Man without Christ is spiritually lifeless, but in Christ he is so wonderfully alive, for he is the life, he is the truth, and he leads his own triumphantly to the Father. Now Philip's question, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. It would seem Philip was looking for something of a glorious nature, maybe something that would have resembled Christ's transfiguration, which only three disciples saw or on the Mount of Transfiguration, or something like when Moses and Aaron and his sons plus the 70 elders saw when they saw the underside of God in Exodus 24, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in its clearness. Or maybe what Moses desired to see God's glory and saw only the hinder part as recorded in Exodus 33, 20 23. Philip had been with the Lord from the very beginning and was one of the first disciples called in John 1 43. By the Lord's response, it was one of the few times the patience of the Lord was really tried. Notice what he said Philip, have I been so long with you and you don't know who I am?
For three years, the apostles had all that time, day in and day out, to witness the invisible God made visible and the humanity of Jesus Christ. They had three years to witness the authority of his teaching and three years to witness every miracle the human heart could think of to prove his divinity. Nothing could resist the authority of his voice. Not demons, not wind and waves, not dead, even when the death was four days. Not any kind of human infirmity could resist the authority of his words. In Hebrews 1.3, he was the brightness of the Father's glory. Colossians 2.9, in Christ dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Maybe another reason for Philip's question was, was what was in the minds of all the apostles, having witnessed his triumphal entry into Jerusalem just a few days before they were thinking the return of the Davidic kingdom. It had to be very much in their minds. And to prove that earlier that day, they were arguing who's going to be the greatest. Imagine that. And his, you, here's something, when I read that passage, it was on just shortly before the eve of our Lord's betrayal. He he caught them arguing, "Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit in the right? Hand? Who's going to sit in the left?" And how did Jesus deal with them? When you when you really let this sink in, you you can't help but love our Lord. Did he castigate them, knowing what he's about going to do for them the next day? No. He said, "Brethren," he said, "Who's the greatest?" One that sits at the table or one that does the serving? Well, he said, the one that sits at the table. You're right. And I am one among you who serves. Wasn't that powerful? Oh, if we only have his spirit. The Lord's response to Philip in verse 11 was 10 11 was the same as he gave to those who hated him. In John 10 38, they were trying to kill him. And look what he said Believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And look what he said to uh, 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 Philip Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Almost identical words. His deity was so clearly in the tenderness of his love and his awesome power to bring something out of so little in the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. The demons were under his power. They testified to his deity. Testimony of David in Psalm 36, 5, he says, Thy faithfulness reaches to the clouds. And 1 Corinthians 1, 24, the apostle Paul testified that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Probably the most important factor was their lack of understanding the Trinity and unity and equality within the Godhead. Remember, they did not have the Holy Spirit as we have, and the birthday of the church was still some 40 days away. We have the complete record of all divine truth, plus 2,000 years of church history, and we still lack spiritual insight as they did at times. The Scripture made very plain the only way to the Father and and known to be known is as he's revealed in the Son. If the disciples would have understood Matthew 1.23, where it says, A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, the same thing as Isaiah 7.14, they would have known the one they followed for three years was God manifest in the flesh. 
There is a wondrous unity in the Godhead which Christ to some extent testified this to the Pharisees in John 5, 21, 23. Listen to what he said to the Pharisees and they hated him for it. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but committed all judgment unto the Son. He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which has sent him. Now, you've been very patient. Now, just a few words of application. It has been said that verse 6 in our text is an unbreakable chain linked together by infinite oneness. The unity of the God-man and God the Father. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We need to ask this. Will he take to glory one who only gives him lip service and not service from the heart? I want to repeat that. Will he, Christ, take one who only gives him lip service and not service from the heart? In John 2, 25 and 26, are words the Lord spoke after cleansing the temple and performing many miracles, and some believed in him. And that word believe means pisteo, to give credit, a mental persuasion, not a firm conviction, not a heart belief. And listen to how the Lord responds. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any man should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And as I said before, why I love, I love Hebrew 4.13. Oh, I love that verse. Everything is naked and open. He knows this morning just what you're thinking right now. Isn't that wonderful? He knows what you're thinking. In John 10, 14, the Lord speaking, I am the good shepherd and am known of mine. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Genosco, that means to know experientially. In 2 Timothy 2, 19, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Fifteen times in the four gospel accounts, there is a record of the Lord's command, follow me. He doesn't say, accept me. He says, follow me. Follow me. And by me they come to the Father. And as our text says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand or out of the Father's hand. What does it mean to follow Christ? I'll give you this illustration. The evidence we are as sheep and blind. How? What is the evidence that we belong to him? If we're called as sheep, what is the evidence? And I'll give it from an illustration in, um, when I was in India. Sometimes there'll be five flocks gathered together to bed down for a time to rest. And I said to the, uh, to the director, I said, how can they keep from being getting mixed up? He said, the sheep of every flock that has its own shepherd, they will only respond to the voice of their shepherd. Now, if dumb animals are so... Uh, 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 they are so uh, uh, in tune with the voice of their shepherd. Should we not be in greater? We who uh, are born of his spirit, shouldn't we, and have his spirit dwelling in us, shouldn't we be sensitive to, uh, to his voice? Shouldn't that not keep us from following the many voices in the world that are drawing our, for our attention? We need to hear his voice and his only to guard and direct and live out our lives.
As I said before, spiritually, there are many voices calling for attention. But if we are of the divine sheepfold, the only voice we will pay attention to is the voice of the great shepherd, who is the truth. John 8, 31, 36. He said, if you are my disciples, continue in my word, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And they said, we've never been bondage to anybody. What do you mean? Uh, 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 we'll be set free. And Jesus responded, he that committeth sin is the servant, the slave of sin. And the servant abideth not ever, but the son abideth ever. And they said this, if the son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. And how well do I know that? Free from the penalty of sin. Free from the power of sin. And one day free from the presence of sin. What a future we have to be free from the very presence of sin. Be ever looking on to Jesus as commanded. Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Be looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despite the shame, and is set down to the right hand of the Father, by which he is building his church, and the gates of hell are not prevailing against it. Which means to be looking at the cross for a closer walk with God. Be looking less at yourself and be looking more at Christ. And you will find besetting sins dropping off. I want to repeat that. Be looking at the cross for a closer walk with God. Be looking less at yourself and be looking more at Christ. And you will find besetting sins dropping off. To be looking onto Christ is for your heart to be occupied with him, the gaze of your soul fixed on him, and that what will happen, we will become more like him. In a marital relationship, a husband is honored when his wife trusts him. How much more should this be true of the church, the bride in our relationship with the divine bridegroom? Obedience opens the understanding to spiritual truth. And the knowledge of the truth comes from the person who has learned to imitate the Lord in humility and obedience. And just as the Lord gave us an example in submitting to the Father in every area of life in humility, those who want to be with Jesus and the Father in glory must prove it by fellowship with him here on earth. For heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Who are they? As our text says, those who are united to Christ by the new birth, who has opened the way to the Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen.